women have to become ready-made. They're not, no one wants to take a risk with a woman, but you're quite willing to take a risk with a man. And I think there the mindset has to change when it comes to creating opportunities for younger people. Irene Khan has had an illustrious career. From her position as the first female Secretary General of Amnesty International, her election as Director General of the International Development Law Organization, and of course, her latest title as UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. Although each of these steps in her career are huge achievements for Khan herself, they have also been paving the road for other women in international law. On this episode of Women in International Justice, Irene Khan discusses her role as a pioneer and her hopes for the future with Professors Andrew Clapham and Neus Torbisco Casals. So you have an impressive career, and as a woman specifically, you've been a pioneer, I think, in holding crucial positions for human rights uh, advocacy. You were the first person from Asia, the first woman, the first Muslim to direct Amnesty International. You were also the first woman to hold the position of Director General at the International Development Law Organization. And more recently, you are also the first woman to be appointed as the UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Moreover, you have a very interesting mix and variety background as you were born in East Pakistan, now what is Bangladesh, and then lived in Northern Ireland, England, the US, and it seems in many other places. So we would like to know how your background and life experiences influence the approach to the role that you occupy now and have occupied in the past. And also how this mixed background and your experience have a direct influence on the perception that you have or how you shape this role. Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, talk and for actually picking up this issue of gender equality in the justice sector. That's an issue very close to my heart. As you noted, you know, I have broken a few glass ceilings, but I'm very pleased that I'm no longer the only woman that headed Amnesty International. It now has another female head. I am no longer the only woman who headed IDLO. There is also a female successor to myself. So what has been important for me is to open the path, to open the pathway for other women, just as many other women before me have helped to make the path easier for me. So what I have learned from this experience of working in different cultures, studying, meeting people, has been the importance of solidarity. Women's solidarity is, I think, the single important force that has advanced gender equality. Uh, women working with women across all cultures. I think that is one of the biggest lessons that I take from having lived in, grown up in South Asia, have then lived in Northern Ireland, which was at that time in the late 70s, a war-torn uh, space, uh, just like my own country that went through a liberation war, a secession in the process of seceding from Pakistan to become Bangladesh. And then later in other parts of the world that I've lived, everywhere I've seen solidarity and organization are key to women's advancement. And so continuing with this idea of breaking ceilings and coming from diverse places and having different experiences. 
you know, how it was to be a woman student and then a young professional back in the 70s and the 80s. Did you have women role models? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. In fact, the woman who had the most influence on me in my early days was a professor at the University of Manchester, where I took my first law degree. She taught family law. I took family law with her and it opened up this whole new area of law where equality had different connotations. Justice did not always work so well. I was very impressed with her and that, and I think she then brought, helped me to understand the importance of a rights-based approach to justice. So it wasn't just a question of procedural justice, but also substantive justice. And this woman that I'm talking about is today Lady Hale. At that time, she was Barbara Huckett. She was a lecturer at the University of Manchester and my tutor. So she had a tremendous influence on me. I think we all need to have a role model going forward. But I also want to say that these role, role models don't have to be well-known personalities. They can be people around you. In my case, coming from a traditional Muslim society in Bangladesh, I think I, my mother, for example, was a very big influence in my life. Uh, she just completed her high school and at the age of 15 was married. By the time she was 22, she was a mother of three girls. And in Muslim societies, particularly in the 60s uh, and 70s, uh, being a mother of three girls it not, is not necessarily seen as a distinction. But she was determined that her girls would get all the opportunities that any sons she might have produced would get. And she fought tradition. She fought all sorts of prejudice and bias in the society, in the community, in her own family to ensure that we were able to get the best possible education, all three of us. We were sent abroad at a time when single young Muslim teenage girls were not encouraged to behave in that way. And I think her courage was a great boost to all of us, to all three of us, and to many others in our family and other women uh, later, of how a woman herself who has been deprived of opportunity can still promote gender equality. Oh, that's a fantastic answer and, and very illuminating. Just going back to another Famous, yeah, the lecture series in which you participated is dedicated to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and who I think can be compared to Lady Hale in many respects <laughs> in the U.S. And Ginsburg, as you probably know, once famously said that when I'm sometimes asked, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? Uh, and my answer is, she said, when there are nine. And she said, people are shocked, but there are always nine men and nobody's ever raised a question about that. Do you agree with this statement? Could you reflect a bit more on the experience as a professional who has devoted her life to gender and justice in many respects? Yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is also one of my heroes. I had the privilege of meeting her a number of times and I was always amazed at this little diminutive figure, but with such an such powerful clarity of thought, I would also say, is an inspiration not just to me, but I think hundreds of thousands of 
women uh, lawyers around the world. Well, you know, I fully agree with her because I have, you asked me earlier what kind of barriers or prejudices or biases I've had to encounter. When I came to the UN, I was shocked to see that an organization that is meant to be open and diverse was not so open to women in the 80s when I joined the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And whenever there were questions about promoting a woman or appointing a woman, there were always questions about her competence. And I would often dare to say, look, we don't hesitate to appoint incompetent men. Why do we worry about appointing incompetent women? So rather like Ruth Ginsburg, when it comes to women and gender, very often these issues come up in ways that they don't come up when you're talking about men. And of course, you don't want incompetent women any more than you would want incompetent men. But we should not allow those kinds of mindsets to, to block us from being brave enough to open up opportunities for those who have potential and creating the space for such opportunities. That's the important thing. Women have to become ready-made. They're not, no one wants to take a risk with a woman, but you're quite willing to take a risk with a man. And I think there the mindset has to change when it comes to creating opportunities for younger people. And of course, after UNHCR, you moved on to Amnesty International, where now you held the number one spot there. And we've been thinking that Gender diversity and the question of equality between men and women has usually been associated with civil and political rights or, or the sort of traditional, what sometimes people wrongly call first generation rights. But at Amnesty, you started to stress the importance of economic, social, and cultural rights. And it would be interesting to hear the extent to which you think that the gender question or the representation of women is something that also ought to be tackled within the field of promotion and protection of economic, social and cultural rights? I think the indivisibility of rights is as important as the universality of human rights. So yes, we are all equal, but we all enjoy civil and political rights as well as economic, social and cultural rights. And unless one takes a, an integrated approach to promoting rights, it's very difficult to promote equality. And that's, I learned that lesson in Amnesty. Not, I came in at a time when Amnesty was shifting to economic, social and cultural rights, but also I was, I was Secretary General when Amnesty launched the global campaign to stop violence against women. And that was actually the best way of making the point about the indivisibility of rights. You, we all know the gender-based violence, sexual and gender-based violence is probably the biggest barrier to gender equality, the biggest manifestation of inequality between men and boys and women and girls. But you could not tackle that issue unless you also looked at all the rights that are violated and all the rights that must be protected and promoted if we are to fight gender-based violence. And that includes education of women, employment of women, women's right to health. So these are economic and social rights. So that's why I think that uh, indivisibility of human rights is so integral to gender equality. Moving on from that period in Amnesty, if we come to more recent times, uh, as you know, there's a lot of concern that we're facing populist, authoritarian, intolerant movements, including certain politicians and groups that are engaged in hate speech and reactionary policies which have put freedom of expression under threat. And we are interested to know the extent to which you think international justice and international courts have a role in ensuring the protection of human rights, and in particular, human rights groups that are increasingly under threat. 
Well, the international human rights system is that is the, at the foundation of national human rights and provides both the legal foundation but also the political impetus to keep states on the straight track on human rights. And that's why the human rights monitoring bodies and also the judicial system is so important. I have just recently been working on a case in Colombia where as special rapporteur, I have submitted an amicus brief on freedom of expression. And there, what we have done is, of course, we have looked at uh, the decisions of the Inter-American Court. We have looked at the decisions of the European Court, as well as some other national decisions to try to persuade the Colombian Constitutional Court to take a certain uh, position. You, as law professor, of course, know better than me how many of the courts, national courts, actually look, and many of them do look increasingly, not only to each other, but also to the international standards. In, in East Africa, for example, we've seen some very good decisions coming from the East African Court or from the African Human Rights Court. So we see increasingly the international judiciary producing jurisprudence that guides many of these uh, national courts. And they look to that guide. Unfortunately, at the level of legal education, international law still is not given the kind of weight I think it ought to be given in many law schools. So both lawyers and judges end up in court not understanding very much about international human rights. But I think it's extremely important that the international courts, their decisions are there to guide both the judiciary, but their decisions also send a very strong political message to the politicians. And we have seen that increasingly in the European context, that decisions in Strasbourg do have a national impact. On, on many occasions, you know, governments take account of it and change their own behavior. So I think it does matter. The international court system does matter. I'm afraid that they don't always get the resources they need, get the attention um, they need at, at the popular level, at you know, in, in public media and so on. But I think from a perspective of institution building, they are a very important pillar. Thank you. In the academic world, and particularly in the West at the moment, there's a lot of preoccupation, I would say, with the idea that these judges are, are too distant and there's a cleavage between the international elite and the, the people at the local level. And that these judges are not diverse in the sense that they don't really understand what's happening at the national level. They're living in their international bubble. Is that sort of feeling that you would share? I mean, do we have a problem about the distance that these international judges have from the people that they're judging? Well, you know, I would say that is not just criticism of international legal system, but also of national legal systems. The judiciary tend to be quite distant from their people. And I have been teaching a course on human rights and development at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And one of the classes that I do is precisely on adjudication and how, how far apart the poor, for example, feel. The law does not work for the poor as far as they are concerned. And a large part, and, and many of them never, most of them never ever go to court. They settle the disputes. As we know, 80% of the disputes in the world are settled outside the court system. And that is because People don't feel the court is so accessible. And there is, of course, issues of cost and time and complexity. So both at the national and international level, yes, there is an issue there. And that is all the more reason why there needs to be a more diverse judiciary to build legitimacy. People must have trust if institutions are to work 
properly. And the distance, of course, or the feeling of distance affects legitimacy. And particularly when you look at the International Court of Justice, I think of the 107 or so judges that have been appointed there, only about, what, 3-4% of them have been women. Uh, at the moment, I think there are about five women on the court, but that's the maximum that they've ever had. And that's quite shameful when you consider, look around and you see so many brilliant women uh, jurists haven't got to the court. And the question is, why not? I remember during your lecture, there were questions coming in thick and fast from the participants. And I think one of them that didn't get properly asked by us, which I could ask you now, is do you have any advice or a message that you would give to women at the beginning of their career who would like to have a career as exciting and varied as yours as to how to engage and what they can look forward to? I think what they can look forward to is a lot. It depends on what you want to get out of it. You can get anything out of it. So certainly they, they won't miss, they won't be disappointed there, uh, but they need to be prepared to constantly make choices. There is, of course, for all women professionals, there's always the dilemma of life work uh, balance, but over and beyond that, you pay a price for mobility as well. Although I think if there is uh, one silver lining to the pandemic, it probably is our ability to figure out that we can we can do a lot of international work from our homes, but even then you will have to be out there in the field. You will have to travel from country to country. And that does have an impact on your personal life and your choices and family and so on. And I think for women in particular, that requires very careful planning and acceptance. There's an opportunity cost to it. But on the positive side, I would tell uh, women, uh, young women to not to be afraid, to be courageous, to go out there, to take risks and to always put your hand up and ask. Push yourself in because no one else will do it for you. So be forthright, go there, do it, grab it, enjoy it. I find your previous point on trust extremely relevant. And in fact, uh, this is a question that concerns very directly our research project, uh, which has to do with, in fact, why diversity matters and specifically why diversity in the composition of the international judiciary should matter. Um, and one possible response points to the positive impact of diverse institutions on extending trust and not just social legitimacy among different stakeholders and communities. Uh, so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on the plausibility of these connections, of these links between trust, social legitimacy, and also expanding uh, the inclusiveness of, of different communities. Let me just make one point. We're talking, we've been talking so far about women, but we need, when we're talking about diversity, we need to be careful that it is not just women or one kind of women. Women are not a homogenous uh, group, and we must be very careful to, when we talk about diversity, to also recognize intersectionality, which has been key to feminist thinking that there is also can be your social status, your race, your whether you're rural or urban, all kinds of other identity and characteristics have to be taken into account. And we sometimes tend to forget that when we're talking about gender parity as just being about biological sex. So I do agree with you that diverse institutions perform better because they bring in different perspectives. And when they bring in different perspectives, they create a better impact and also um, build trust across. So if, for example, if the African member states see an African on the court, then they are reassured 
that the African perspective is going to be represented. But I think one also has to do more than that. I think there has been a traditional approach of the judiciary, which has been that in order to be impartial, you have to stay out of the fray and therefore you do not mix with people. And I just wonder whether in the digital age, when we are connecting, whether that kind of aloofness is the best way of promoting international law decisions. I think there needs to be much more interaction now, and the judges should not be afraid that interaction will somehow pollute their impartiality. That also exists with the international tribunals. Their distance from the issues might give them a perception of impartiality, but it might also create certain walls that are not necessarily walls. They're not very helpful. And that needs to be broken down. And I'm trying, for example, in my current capacity as Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Opinion and Expression, I'm trying to uh, bring the judiciary in as an institution to protect uh, freedom of expression, protect journalists and others, and have a, uh, some cooperation with UNESCO on that. And there again, I see that judges are not so keen to sit down around the table with activists, journalists, lawyers, prosecutors, and investigators. I think too strict separation can lead to creating silos. I agree with you that uh, mobilizing international public opinion is a very powerful force, uh, but even Amnesty has realized that it hasn't always been helpful to have a large northern, active, northern, well-mobilized public opinion try to put pressure for change in the global south, for example. So fair public opinion too, or and global civil society too, is becoming more globalized now. Um, globalization of civil society is one of the very important forces that, that those who are being autocratic will have to confront. And there are different ways now. We always uh, read a lot about social media platforms and all the negative uh, things that are happening there. But those social media platforms, too, have created great opportunities for mobilization and sharing and understanding. And I think digital technology could be used much more creatively to bring judicial decisions and the judicial systems closer to people. For example, the opening of the courts. Many of the courts have now been online. And that means the public have had access to court hearings in a way in which they never had before. And that has changed people's perception of what courts are like. In Kyrgyzstan, IDLO had a program for, it was basically to change people's perception of the judiciary because people thought judiciary judges were all corrupt and they never would go to court and then they would have conflicts in, the, in, in their own communities. So how do you encourage them to do it? What we did then very creatively was to actually bring reality TV into the courtrooms and have people watch that and then go talk to the audiences to see what they found about it. So something like that on a larger scale, I think would be fascinating. Judges can stay where they are in The Hague, but if people could watch them when they give judgments, their performance, the judge's performance will improve because they know they have a large audience and they have to make themselves more understandable to people, not just to the lawyers in the room. And of course, people would see justice being delivered. You know, justice has to be seen. We all know that. That's why we have open trials. So let's just do it on a bigger scale. And let's do it creatively with technology these days. Thank you very much. And just the last question for the audience. Is there a book, story, essay, a poem, something, some literary work that has had an enduring influence on you? My country, Bangladesh, produced uh, one uh, Nobel laureate in the 1920s, the poet Tagore. 
At that time, he was a very strong voice for independence of the Indian subcontinent. And he was also one of the very early champions of gender equality. At a time in the 1920s, when women in the subcontinent did not have education, he opened schools, music schools for girls, university, he set up a university which is still there in outside Calcutta in India. It's hard to translate it directly, but what he basically said, he talked about having faith, abiding faith in the goodness of people. And I think that's what we need to remember when we're working in the human rights field, because we always talk about violations, but it is actually the inspiration of what it the world can be if all of us were equal and if all of us had the same opportunity. So I always think of Tagore when I need some inspiration. Thank you. Thank you very much, Irene. This has been just a great opportunity to talk to you. Thank you, Irene. It's fantastic. Really good. It's going to make a great podcast. Good. I'm sure. Thank you very much. Look forward to listening to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women in International Justice. Don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more conversations with women who are reshaping the international judiciary system. If you'd like to hear more about women on the international bench, go to graduateinstitute.ch forward slash diversity INTL bench or follow the link in the show notes below and follow the lecture series organized by the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy.